Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Georgianologist, and, of course, Southern Gentleman Michael Ian Black, sipping as I do down south. Soda pop, not Diet Coke this time. Diet Dr. Pepper, which is as close to Dr. Pepper as you can get without it actually being Dr. Pepper. Now, I've tried the Dr. Pepper Zero, which is uh, their new zero-calorie version of the drink. I think I prefer the DDP. I think I prefer the classic DDP. Well, I, I speak to you somewhat begrudgingly today from Savannah, Georgia, because I was supposed to be in Roma, in uh, Italia, living uh, this, this sweet life there, the Bella Vida. But uh, yeah, that got canceled last minute, or I should say postponed. We have a friend who lives in Rome, and uh, you know she she's going to be there. For, she's working there. She's going to be there for a few years, and she was like, hey, you should come to Rome. And we were like, oh, okay, we'll go to Rome. Why not? So we booked flights and everything, and then turns out, you know, she works for the she works for the government, so she's got to travel now. There's some sort of governmental thing she's got to do, and so the whole thing got postponed till uh, till September. So I was gonna be I was gonna be uh, eating uh, cacio e pepe and a pizza and and and, uh, and uh, chicken parmesan and spaghetti and the meatballs. I know I'm just saying American. Italian-American dishes, that was the joke, but it's a fairly subtle and not very funny joke. Uh, but instead, I'm stuck here in the deep south, sipping on my DDP. Ugh. I mean, it's probably just as well, you know? Who wants, who wants to be touring ruins from uh, ancient civilizations? Who wants to be chowing down on 
delicious food and ogling the finely dressed Italian bell bellas and bellows and I don't know. I was looking forward, you know what I was looking forward to? Seeing how the Italian men dress because Martha always says, oh Michael, the Italian men dress, you won't believe it. You'll, you're going to want to come home and start dressing like an Italian man. And I was thinking, oh, maybe I will. You know, maybe I'll get myself an Italian suit while I'm there. Something lightweight that I can strut around Savannah in, you know, and have, uh, have all the tourists glance at me and go, ooh, who's, who's that handsome southern gentleman? And they'd say, uh, oh, is that Michael Ian Black, host of Obscure? And then somebody else would say, who, what? And then they would say, oh, you wouldn't get it. It's Obscure. And then, and, then we, and then they would give me a sort of secret look, and I would look back and we would kind of nod at each other, and uh, that nod would indicate, oh, we should, we should become friends, you know, and, and then maybe we'd meet a little later on at Forsyth Park, you know, and talk about our lives and our hopes and our dreams, and I would say, so what brings you to Savannah? And they'd say, oh, my sister's getting married, you know, and so we came down here with a whole party and I don't know I don't even know I don't know if I approve of the guy you know he's seems like a real ne'er-do-well and I, I would say what do you mean like Heathcliff and uh, the person would say well maybe not quite as bad as Heathcliff you know but but maybe you know he's got a dark personality and maybe there's some there's some secrets in his past and I don't think he should marry my sister and I'd say I'd say you know this is this really is starting to sound like the plot of Wuthering Heights you know and, and then that person would be like, well, I'm not, I'm only up to the middle of season two, Frankenstein. And I would say, well, you're going to be surprised when you get, when you get to season three, because you really just outlined the plot of Wuthering Heights. And then we would have a good laugh and then uh, shake hands and never see each other again. All right. So last we met, there were, you know, more trouble at Thrushcross Grange. The book maybe should have been called Thrushcross Grange because it seems like the bulk of the story takes place there, at least the first half. So there's a there's a there's a whole uh, 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 love rhombus going on with Isabella and Heathcliff, who is pretending to like her in order to maybe get her fortune. And Catherine's pissed off, and Edgar's pissed. I bet he's pissed at each other. Edgar's saying, you know, to his wife, "Hey, him or me." And uh, to his sister, him or me, you know, and 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 uh, Catherine's up there in her in her garret, starving herself to death. She's on a hunger strike, and well, she skipped a couple meals, and that's where we left it at the end of chapter eleven in high dudgeon. So let us pick it up with Wuthering Heights, chapter twelve. While Miss Linton moped about the park and garden, always silent and almost always in tears, and her brother shut himself up among books that he never opened, wearying, I guessed, with a continual vague expectation that Catherine, repenting her conduct, would come of her own accord to ask pardon and seek a reconciliation. And she fasted pertinaciously. Now, I have to say... I don't know what the educational system in America was there in the early 1800s, or I guess maybe this is the 1700s. I can't remember when this book takes place, but uh, Mrs. Dean or Miss Dean has herself quite a vocabulary. She is 
Uh, Catherine's moping around, what's that word? Pertinaciously. And then uh, last episode, uh, she she replied to her brother peremptorily. You know, she's got herself quite a silver tongue for a housekeeper. Maybe she should have been a writer like Emily Bronte. But anyway, so Catherine, you know, is moping around and uh, Edgar's moping around waiting for Catherine to come down and ask forgiveness. And she's not going to do that. You know, she's stubborn as a mule, as they say, and has the same kind of kick to her, too. Does she not? She does. She fasted pertinaciously under the idea, probably, that at every meal, Edgar was ready to choke for her absence and pride alone held him from running to cast himself at her feet. I went about my household duties, convinced that the Grange had but one sensible soul in its walls, and that lodged in my body. Well, you know, one thing I like about Miss Dean here is, uh, you know, she's, uh, she knows who she is, she likes herself, feels very confident in her own skin, you know, probably the most secure person in the tale. Doesn't seem to have any kind of hidden agendas, but, you know, she's also the narrator, so she's painting herself in the best possible light, as we tend to do in our stories. Now, I will say this. Well, should I say? Well, I might as well say. Well, that's one of the things I was conscious of. I'm always conscious of when I write about my life, you know, that our perceptions of ourselves and our own intentions don't necessarily match the perceptions that other people have of us and their own interpretation of our intentions. And I am always reluctant, I'll go a step further, I am loath to cast myself as the hero of my own tale. I don't know that my own tale has any heroes, but I, I tend to make myself look like the asshole in most of the things that I write concerning myself. And I wonder, maybe, maybe I look like too much of an asshole in my own writings, I don't know. But, you know, when you are, uh, what's the word, neurotic, and you tend to blame yourself for all of life's woes, then look, you're going you're gonna to cast yourself as the asshole, you know, because you think it's your fault. That's kind of what I do. And then there's the opposite. What's the opposite of neurotic? Not quite narcissistic. I can't remember. But, you know, there's, there, there are the people in this world who think everything that happens is their fault, and there's the people in this world who think everything that happens is everybody else's fault. I'm definitely in the former category there are people in my life, my wife, my daughter, who are in the latter category. And then my son doesn't seem to cast blame at all. He's, he's sort of zen. All right. So she's saying, I'm the only, I'm the only sane one in the house. And, and honestly, it's kind of hard to argue with her at this point. I wasted no condolences on Miss, nor any expostulations on my mistress. Nor did I pay attention to the sighs of my master, who yearned to hear his lady's name, since he might not hear her voice. I determined they should come about as they pleased for me, and though it was a tiresomely slow process, I began to rejoice at length in a faint dawn of its progress, as I thought at first. Mrs. Linton, on the third day, unbarred her door, and having finished the water in her pitcher and decanter, desired a renewed supply and a basin of gruel, for she believed she was dying. <laughs> then I sat down as a speech meant for Edgar's ears. I believed no such thing, so I kept it to myself and brought her some tea and dry toast. 
She eat and drank. Well, that's interesting. She eat, present tense, and drank, past tense, eagerly. So I wonder if that's a, a peculiarity of the language, an anachronism of the language. She eat and drank eagerly and sank back on her pillow again, clenching her hands and groaning. Oh, I will die, she exclaimed, since no one cares anything about me. I wish I had not taken that. And a good while after, I heard her murmur, No, I'll not die. He'd be glad. He does not love me at all. He would never miss me. Did you want anything, ma'am? I inquired, still preserving my external composure in spite of her ghastly countenance and strange, exaggerated manner. What is that apathetic being doing? She demanded, pushing the thick, entangled locks from her wasted face. Has he fallen into a lethargy, or is he dead? Neither, replied I, if you mean Mr. Linton. He's tolerably well, I think. Oh, here go the dogs. Here go the goddamn dogs. Bark, 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 bark. You know, I, you know I've said it before, I'll say it again. I hate these fucking dogs. I really do. Maybe you say, oh, you're being cruel, you're being mean. Well, right before I recorded, I spent, you know, the last 20 minutes vacuuming, vacuuming up dog hair. Because... They shed inexorably. They are in, particularly Oli, the lab, is in inexorable shedder of fur. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it, it's just never ending. And so, you know, the housework, I feel like, is quadrupled because of him. Horrible. Oh, now... Now Martha's yelling at them. What I think is happening, I think the reason for the uh, uproar is that they're coming to, uh, we got people coming to, you know, we're renting out our hovel for for Airbnb. We've got a hovel downstairs and... uh, we're using a management company, and I think the management company is coming by to kind of, you know, take a look-see-do, and then they're going to photograph it later on today, and then, you know, they're going to start listing it. It's a pretty good deal, you know, the management company. They do everything, you know. You don't even have to. I don't even have to deal with the uh, the short-term vacation stayers here, and uh, you know, they take twenty percent. It feels like a good deal to me. You know, they take care of everything. They take care of the housekeeping and the upkeep. And if people have questions, they call them, not us. I don't even have to, I don't even have to meet face to face with the goddamn people living in my house, which is how I want it to be. Last thing I want is to be like, hey, welcome to my house. No, fuck you. Give me your money. That's what I want. Things seem to have settled down here, but not there. You know, Catherine, drama queen. I'm dying, I'm dying. No, you're not. Oh, here comes Squash. Why are you here? Why are you here? Don't poke your little head, your, your little nose in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library like I'm glad to see you because I'm not. You better slink away. He slank away because he knew. He knew. <sighs> Frust- oh, God, I'm frustrated. You know what? Let's just take a break, okay? Let me collect my wits about me. And we'll return in a moment here on Obscure.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure. The house has settled somewhat. If any of you want a dog, by all means, take one. I hate them. All right, so Catherine's, you know, saying, is, is Mr. Linton dead? Why hasn't he come see me? Why, 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 he doesn't care. He doesn't love me. And what Mrs. Dean should say is, well, why the fuck should he love you? You're horrible. But, you know, Catherine goes, has he fallen into a lethargy is, or is he dead? Neither, replied I, if you mean Mr. Linton. He's tolerably well, I think, though his studies occupy him rather more than they ought. He is continually among his books, since he has no other society. I should not have spoken so if I had known her true condition, but I could not get rid of the notion that she acted a part of her disorder. Among his books, she cried confounded, and I dying, I on the brink of the grave. My God, does he know how I'm altered? continued she, staring at her reflection in a mirror hanging against the opposite wall. Is that Catherine Linton? He imagines he imagines me in a pet, in play, perhaps. Can you not inform him that it is frightful earnest? Nelly, if it be not too late, as soon as I learn how he feels, I'll choose between these two, either to starve at once, that would be no punishment unless he had a heart, or to recover and leave the country. Are you speaking the truth about him now? Take care. Is he actually so utterly indifferent for my life? Why, ma'am, I answered, the master has no idea of you being deranged, and, of course, he does not fear that you will let yourself die of hunger. You think not? Can you not tell him I will? She returned. Persuade him. Speak of your own mind. Say you are certain I will. No, you forget, Mrs. Linton, I suggested, that you have eaten some food with a relish this evening, and tomorrow you will perceive its good effects. If I were only sure it would kill him, she interrupted, I'd kill myself directly. These three awful nights, I've never closed my lids, and, oh, I've been tormented, I've been haunted, Nellie. But I begin to fancy you don't like me. 
How strange! I thought, though everybody hated and despised each other, they could not avoid loving me. And they have all turned to enemies in a few hours. They have, I'm positive, the people here. How dreary to meet death, surrounded by their cold faces. Isabella, terrified and repelled, afraid to enter the room, it would be so terrible to watch Catherine go. And Edgar, standing solemnly by to see it over, then offering prayers of thanks to God for restoring peace to his house and going back to his books. What in the name of all that feels has he to do with books when I am dying? So, I mean, yes, okay, yes, she's a drama queen. Yes, we understand that. However, we also know that Catherine does die. Now, is this the point of her departure? I don't know. Is this where she, you know, uh, is, is uh, number one for takeoff and is ready to soar off into the great blue yonder? I don't know. Nor do I understand or have any inclination as to why she should die. Like, what, is, what, what, what would possibly be ailing her in this moment? She was fit as a fiddle not three pages ago. You know, when she was conspiring with Heathcliff. But now there's been a tussle in the house and suddenly she's dying. Well, I don't understand that. You know, it's like in Frankenstein, you know, somebody gets a shock and then they take to bed for three months. I mean, what the hell? What the hell is wrong with people's constitutions? They just don't seem to, to, to have any metal. You know, people talk about how, you know, how, how weak and pampered we are today. But, you know, when somebody gets bad news, they don't take to their bed for three months. You might start a blog about it, and that's horrible in its own way. But, geez, I don't understand. I don't understand why she should be dying. She could not bear the notion which I had put into her head of Mr. Linton's philosophical resignation. Tossing about, she increased her feverish bewilderment to madness and tore the pillow with her teeth. Then, raising herself up all burning, desired that I would open the window. We were in the middle of winter. The wind blew strong from the northeast, and I objected. Both the expressions flitting over her face and the changes of her mood began to alarm me terribly, and brought to my recollection her former illness and the doctor's injunction that she should not be crossed. Okay, so maybe she's what, bipolar? Maybe she's manic? I mean, I don't know what her deal is. But she shouldn't be dying. And we also know that she does a lot of play acting, you know? She puts on this stuff for dramatic intent. She's horrible. I hope she does die. I mean, I know she's going to. I hope she dies soon. I hope Edgar is freed from her. Because he's, he's turned out to be an okay guy, you know? I mean, maybe, look, he's a little stern. He's a little cross. But he's an okay guy. And you'd be stern and cross, too, if you were married to her and you had to deal with Heathcliff. God, what a nightmare. A minute previously, she was violent. Now, supported on one arm and not noticing my refusal to obey her, she seemed to find childish diversion in pulling the feathers from the rents she had just made and ranging them on the sheet according to their different species. Her mind had strayed to other associations. 
That's a turkey's, she murmured to herself, and this is a wild duck's, and this is a pigeon's. Ah, they put pigeon's feathers in the pillows. No wonder I couldn't die. Let me take care to throw it on the floor when I lie down. And here is a moor's cock, and this, I should know it among a thousand, it's a lapwing's, bonny bird, wheeling over our heads in the middle of the moor. It wanted to get to its nest, for the clouds had touched the swells, and it felt rain coming. I mean, I mean, what? 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 She's suddenly just insane? She's suddenly just out of her mind and delusional? Come on! You know, I look, I get it. I, I mean, I think I get it to a certain degree. And please ignore, there's dings happening on my, lap, on my laptop. Please ignore them. The kind of... Uh, psychological thing that I feel like happened in novels pre-Freud, pre-Freudian novels, was just that the brain, I guess, was just fully activated and prone to nightmarish fits at the drop of a hat. She's tearing her pillow with her teeth. What the hell? And then she's in some sort of delirium where she's arranging feathers on a pillow. I mean, this is just nonsense. But I feel like this kind of thing, this kind of psychological break, was a common literary trope pre-Freud. Or maybe pre-Freud's popular acceptance into the culture. I don't even know if that's... I don't know what I'm saying. Just nonsense. I'm as, I'm as nonsensical as Catherine Linton. So she's talking about the stupid birds. The feather was picked up from the heath. The bird was not shot. We saw its nest in the winter, full of little skeletons. Heathcliff set a trap over it, and the old ones dare not come. I made him promise he'd never shoot a lapwing after that, and he didn't. Yes, here are more. Did he shoot my lapwings, Nellie? Are they red? Any of them? Let me look. Give over with that baby work, I interpreted. Oh, interrupted. Uh dragging the pillow away and turning the holes towards the mattress, for she was removing its contents by handfuls. Lie down and shut your eyes. You're wandering. There's a mess. The down is flying about like snow. I went here and there collecting it. I see in you, Nellie, she continued dreamily, an aged woman. You have gray hair and bent shoulders, this bed is the fairy cave under Penistone Crag. And now we've got a footnote. Oh, it's, I feel like it's been a good long while since footnotes. I do enjoy them. So let's find out what Penistone Crag is. Probably some American landmark. Let's see. Penist oh, Penistone Crag is one way of spelling the name in the first edition. It also appears as Penistone Crags. Penistone, these are all different spellings. Penistone Crags. Penistone Crag. For anyone who chooses to contemplate the phallic aspects of Heathcliff's character and the entire problem of sexual energy in the novel, as developed, say, by Richard Chase and by Thomas Moser, we can see the afterward notes three and eight, the pun implied by the place name, especially when linked to the pun Heathcliff, and Heathcliff's association with firs and windstone is interesting. I, you know, that has, that has all gone entirely over my head. Peniston Crag. Oh, so I guess the pun is penis, because P-E-N-I-S. Peniston Crag. 
And and what 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 are the Heath Cliff when linked to the pun Heath Cliff? Why why is that a pun? I don't I don't quite know. Well, maybe we can go to the afterword here. Is there an afterword? Let's see. I don't even see the afterword. Just there's no afterword. What are they talking about? Notes to the text, but no afterword that I can find. So. And nor do I know what the problem of sexual energy is in Wuthering Heights. I suppose that is something we will need to contemplate. What is the problem of sexual energy in Wuthering Heights? Because so far as I can tell, there is no problem. It feels right out there on the surface. Now I'm going to crank up the research machine. I'm just going to, I'm literally going to ask. Okay, research machine, what is the problem of sexual energy in Wuthering Heights. <laughs> All right, well, what? So this is John Kennard on Emily Bronte and lesbianism, Wuthering Heights as a lesbian text. <sighs> I don't know. So here's just the first paragraph. My reading of Wuthering Heights as a lesbian text is an argument based on probability. I interpret the doubling of Heathcliff and Catherine Earnshaw as a projection of Emily Bronte's ambivalence about her sexual inversion and the narrative patterns of sameness and difference in the novel as a conflict between homo and heterosexuality. My reading takes its point of departure from the well-established view that Catherine Earnshaw and Heathcliff are doubles a split character. Yes, well, Catherine says as much. He is my twin. He is more me than me. Androgyny, which is stated or implied in most discussions of Heathcliff and Catherine as one character, does not eliminate difference, but rather combines or balances opposites. It remains then firmly within the heterosexual paradigm. Catherine and Heathcliff may be two halves of one person, but they are not an androgynous whole. Identity and complementarity are not synonymous. Rather than representing a balance, a complement to Heathcliff's masculinity, Catherine asserts her identity as Heathcliff. Catherine disrupts the heterosexual in Lacanian terms, I don't know what that is, by refusing to be the phallus and claiming to have the phallus. I am Heathcliff, she says. Okay. I mean, I don't know that I buy that, but okay. I, but of course, I haven't thought about it before. But okay. I mean, I mean, you know, the problem of sexual energy here now, I guess, becomes a little bit more apparent, not necessarily in terms of lesbianism, but in terms of the split character, which, of course, I have to agree with. I have to agree with that assessment. I mean, because Catherine declares it to be so. He is more me than me. We are, we are the same person. And so she is... Uh, drawn inexorably to him, but I don't know that he is drawn in the same way to her. I'm th- I'm, uh, the pause is I'm thinking about it, and I think perhaps it is so, because of course we we know him in the we know in the beginning of the novel when Lockwood first appears how bereft he is, and we know that his grief has to do with Catherine because he has lost half of himself, his split character. It's like they are twins, 
but are they, I'm just thinking, are they one identity cleaved or are they more like twins, two separate identities just kind of genetically married to each other? I don't know. That's something to contemplate. And if they are the same, like Spider-Man and different from different dimensions, what does that say, that they are in love with each other? I don't know. Or is it is it a romantic love that they feel for each other? Or is it something else? Is it something deeper than that? Or is a romantic love, in fact, a desire to find one's twin, which is to say, to find a reflection of oneself, which is to say, to find one's self in another? Is that the ultimate aim of romantic love? Or can we take it a step further? Can we say all love is the desire to be united or perhaps reunited with the source, which is to say the source of love, which can be described as God? Anyway, weighty questions. And we'll leave it there, you know? Look, we had some fun. Let's leave it there. We started with a penis pond, and then we got to the nature of God and love, as it should be. Because ultimately, what is the penis but God? Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I'm going to finish my Diet Coke, my Diet, excuse me, my Diet Dr. Pepper. Maybe going to beat my dogs. And we'll pick it up next time on another philosophical episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedgren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time.